From the Schmoes No Network Studios in Los Angeles, California, it's time for Profiles with your hosts, Alicia Malone and Scott Mance. Hello, Schmoville. Welcome to episode 10 of Profiles 10. We are in double digits, Alicia Malone. And today's profile is on anyone, anyone, Anyone? John Hughes. Hughes, the king of the coming of age movie. He colored a lot of our childhoods and teenagehoods, I and guess you angst, would say. The angst, the Teen alienation. Angst. Yeah, yeah, covering what it feels like to be a teenager in an adult world and trying to, the struggle to try to be understood by your parents and by your teachers and by each other. Yes, and the dialogue he does so well. It's, it's They're so honest. His movies are so honest. The alienation, the peer pressure, yeah. the, the, the hey, hating to live with your families at home but these movies i have to tell you because i was a sophomore in high school when 16 candles came out in 84 Mm -hmm. a junior when breakfast club came out in 85 and just like ferris bueller a senior in high school when ferris bueller's day off came out boy did this movie hit the hit the nail right on the head with my generation but also every generation that followed and you were Jake Ryan, weren't you? And your oh no, I was more like uh, the geek in <laughs> Sixteen Candles. Me too. Me too. That's why I related to it. I love the quote that John Hughes said to Roger Ebert about his movies, and he said that kids are smart enough to know that most teenage movies are just exploiting them, so they respond to a film about teenagers as people. People forget that when you're 16, you're probably more serious than you'll ever be again. My films are about the beauty of just growing up. At that age, you think seriously about the big questions. I think that is the key to why John Hughes works so well is because he treats these teenagers like adults, like people. He gave them respect. And Mm -hmm. unlike other teen comedies at the time, with the exception of Risky Business, which I've always loved, his movies just felt honest. They felt real. And that is why everyone at that time and all the time time since everybody relates to them and of course as we'll see in our show today a lot of his movies a lot of his best films take place in a day or less that's right and they they all take place in and around the chicago area mm-hmm. and he uses a lot of the same actors john candy molly ringwald anthony michael hall even yeah. even uh, paul gleason showed up in yes. a couple of his films and what i love more than anything for obvious reasons is that john hughes is a huge Beatles fan. That's right. Okay. Yeah. And some of his movies, there are obvious references to the Beatles. I mean, yeah. they're really obvious, but there are some subtle ones too. And I'll be happy to point those out to you mm-hmm. as the show progresses. He was a great writer. He was a great director, a great producer. When you saw the words, a John Hughes movie, mm-hmm. you knew you were going to watch something really great. And didn't you just get excited the last week doing your research oh, like I did every so time you saw a John Hughes movie? Wasn't it like, yay? Yeah. So, so fun. Well, let's find out more about John Hughes in our segment called It's a Wonderful Life. Roll it. John Wilden Hughes Jr. was born on February 18, 1950 in Lansing, Michigan. After moving to Northbrook, Illinois, Hughes attended Glenbrook North High School a place that would serve as the inspiration for his most beloved movies. Hughes attended Arizona State University, 
but dropped out to sell jokes to well-established performers like Joan Rivers and Rodney Dangerfield. Soon after, he submitted stories to National Lampoon Magazine, which led to him writing the screenplays for two comedy classics released in 1983, National Lampoon's Vacation and Mr. Mom. But Hughes really found his voice with his directorial debut, 1984's 16 Candles. And with the instant classics that followed, Hughes solidified himself as the voice of a generation. Sadly, John Hughes passed away on August 6, 2009 at the age of 59. He is survived by his wife, Nancy, and two sons. We will never forget about John Hughes. Never forget about John Hughes. I was so crushed when he passed away. I just felt like a part of my childhood was gone. Yeah, but luckily we have his great films that will live on forever. Yes, we do. And what was your first blood with John Hughes? My first blood was Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Oh, good one. Because Ferris Bueller's Day Off and The Breakfast Club pretty much played on a loop in my house. My two older sisters, Yvette and Natalie, just love these movies to death. And when I got introduced to Ferris Bueller's Day Off, I understood why. Such great energy about it. I thought Matthew Broderick was so cool. I wanted to have a day like this. It was such a great dream as a teenager where you could skip from school and then have all these adventures and you'd never get caught. You know, Ferris was so smart as well, all the little inventions that he set up. And it became a tradition for me whenever I was sick, legitimately sick. (laughs) I can't say that word. Legitimately sick. Um, I would watch Ferris Bueller's Day Off and then Pretty Woman. All time. Well, listen, Ferris Bueller's Day Off is a great movie. You're right. It does have this energy. It's irresistible. It is just an infectiously entertaining movie. My First Blood, right at the moment in 1984, was 16 Candles. I saw it new and... You know, that film doesn't have the depth that his later films did in the next couple of years, but it was still different from other teen comedies. And it was an ensemble, even though Molly Ringwald was the focus of this movie. Mm-hmm. It really was an ensemble. I related to the movie, not because I was Jake Ryan, not even close, but because I was one of the geeks. And I wasn't <laughs> even... Anthony Michael Hall's geek because he was geek. a confident geek. Yeah, the head geek. <laughs> he was confident. He had a lot of confidence. Yeah, I was more like the John Cusack geek, <laughs> the wallflower, the, the the real dork. But uh, but you know, I I grew out of my shell yeah. a little. At least, but at least I got confident over the years. But there was a quirkiness to that movie, uh, the quirky humor, which which is different from any of the other movies that John Hughes directed over the over the next few mm. years. But that was my first blood. Well, don't worry, I am the basket case. In Breakfast Club, that's who I related to the most. Um, Allie Shieldy. Let's see. Let's see. I would be not the athlete, definitely not the princess, not the The rebel. I'd be the brain, but without the brain. Yeah, I'd definitely be the basket case. (laughs) Mixed in with a little bit of princess. Okay, let's get into our fast five. five. Coming in at number five. five. I stopped taking the pill three months ago. <laughs> She's having a baby. Oh, I you know, I love this movie. It came out on February fifth, nineteen eighty eight. I would say it's an underrated movie. I agree. It's also the most grown up film that John Hughes ever directed. Mm-hmm. You have Kevin Bacon as Jake Briggs, Elizabeth McGovern, so beautiful mm. as Christy Briggs. They got married young and all the dreams that they had, especially him because it's told from his point of view, are put on the back burner because he has a marriage, a mortgage, and eventually a baby and it's just really is right on in terms of just 
losing your youth, losing yeah. that innocence, and embracing responsibilities, whether you like it or not. Now, we should point out that our Fast Five, we're choosing films directed right. by John Hughes, because, of course, he produced many movies as well and wrote many great films, and we'll get to those in a second. She's having a baby. I remember watching it once, so I had forgotten about this film. Yeah. And watching it again, I saw it on, on the plane on my uh, my little device between um, L.A. and New York the other day, and it made the time fly by because it was so fun to watch i'd forgotten about it the surreal moments there's a lot of daydreams Daydreams. and fantasies i love the scene where all the fathers are mowing the lawn and then they start dancing like that's his life now yeah it's it's a coming of age movie post-college and it's all told from a male perspective but i think you can relate to it whether you're male or female and about the alienation he feels because he doesn't quite fit in kevin bacon's character he doesn't fit in with suburbia talking about what kind of lawnmower you have he doesn't fit in with his career because he wants to be a writer he doesn't want to work in advertising and then he doesn't fit in with his best friend played by alec baldwin who's a real jerk in this movie it's a real jerk but he has that great voice that i love Still sounds like alec and he's so hot when he's young (laughs) and and now too very handsome um and he doesn't fit in with him as the, the single guy still living that life so i think it has some really interesting things to say and it might be a film that not many people have seen. That's true, and hopefully they will after they watch this episode of Profiles or listen to it on iTunes. The the dialogue, the line that I love the most that really sums up where he is, where Kevin Bacon's character is in his life, says, I stumbled into a marriage, drifted into a career, and backed into fatherhood. <laughs> yeah, because there's all these expectations on you. Were you supposed to go to college and get a career and then and get married and, and have a nice house and then have kids? and Especially when you get married young like they did yeah and there's that there's that line from his dream girl that he keeps bumping into where she says i don't think you know what you want and it's true but then in the end maybe he realizes that he He wants exactly what he has great soundtrack too soundtrack is great it's very much of its time but i i found myself bopping along the club the song, the song in the, song the club? club scene, Desire. It's yeah, a great that was song. Awesome. Definitely one of his better soundtracks. Interestingly, this was filmed at the same time as Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, wow. which John Hughes also wrote, produced, and directed. And you see Kevin Bacon in that one too. Yeah, the cameo where he's <laughs> running for running. the cab. Yeah. But listen, John John Hughes in the 80s, between the movies he directed, wrote, and produced, more than 40 movies at that time, between like 83 and 91, mm. he was so prolific. He was. He was on fire. And just especially, he just defined the 80s. Yeah. But let's find out what our friends in Schmoville had to say yeah. about She's Having a Baby. Not a lot of comments about She's Having a Baby. Mm-hmm. Like you said, it's an underseen movie, but really, really a very good one. Craig Sutton says... Sutto, Australian. Oh, he is? Yeah, so we call him Sutto because, you know, you have to shorten everything okay. if you're Australian. Craig Sutto, Australian. Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. Oi, oi, oi. You're learning. My favorite Hughes film is not generally regarded as one of his most popular films. I love the way it addresses the struggles of a new husband. It demonstrates how he has to lead the culture of single life and enter the culture of married life and doesn't appear to have a sense of belonging into either, like what you just said. Yeah, exactly. Something a lot of newly married men can relate to. And Sutto just had kids. Oh, there you Very go. Very recently. No wonder he likes this. <laughs> yeah. Way to go, Sutto. <laughs> yeah, I love chatting to people on, on Twitter. That's a, that's what I do. So, uh, right stuff. Now, there's many, many great scenes in John Hughes movies. I think I can guess what yours might be. Take a wild guess. 
Ferris Bueller, okay. something to do with Beatles. Okay, you guessed it. Yes, shocker. <laughs> yes, I love the scene. Twist and shout. The twist and yeah. shout scene at the parade. Because that, like you said before about the energy of that film, it's all right there in that scene. That someone like Ferris Bueller can get everybody just riled up to sing along to the Beatles' twist and shout. Everybody's dancing. It is such an infectiously entertaining scene, yes. full of vibrancy. Really defined the character in a lot of ways. And and I was at the time when I was when I saw the film, I was really getting into the Beatles because the CDs had just started coming out, and and that was really how it how it happened for me. How I became the obsessed Beatle maniac you see before yourself today. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but but also uh, the the jersey that Cameron was wearing, mm-hmm. the red Detroit Red Devils uh, jersey, the Red Devils logo was a sticker that Paul McCartney had on his Epiphone guitar oh. while he was touring with Paul McCartney and Wings throughout the 70s. Oh, interesting. So that was a little more of a subtle reference to the Beatles and Paul McCartney, but but it's still there. But oh. that's a scene is so great. What is your right stuff? My right stuff is from The Breakfast Club. And it's a scene that me and my sister Yvette, who I mentioned before, we would watch over and over again till we could get all the dialogue perfectly. And the, the reason I love watching films with my sister is she, she notices these little absurd moments that I might have missed otherwise, and she finds them so funny that then they become really funny. So my point is that scene where Bender takes out the screw from the door <laughs> yeah. and the door closes and Richard Vernon comes in. I love the bit where he's trying to get Andrew, the athlete, to come and help him open the door. Well, first he tries with the chair. The door is way too heavy, sir. Yeah. Slam Boom! <laughs> then he's like, Andrew Clark, on your feet. Front and center. Come on, let's go. What are you doing? Come on, come on. Gets him to bring over that big magazine holder and then watching Andrew trying to get through the door by stepping on the magazines and falling over is so funny. And then Richard's like, what's this what doing, are you doing here? Get this out of what here. Doing? I would expect more from a varsity so funny and and all Bender's great lines of like if he gets up we'll all get up it'll be anarchy (laughs) and then of course it gets down to that real battle of wills between Vernon and Bender right you know I've got you I've got you Right. And Don't mess with the bull, you'll get the horns. Shorts. Yes. That whole scene. You just bought yourself another Saturday. Yeah. <laughs> One more, you know. It just keeps going, escalates. And when Richard leaves the, the library, the door shuts behind him and you can hear Bender doing F you. Uh, you see that moment that really humanizes Richard Vernon where he just goes, <sighs> And you can see it really got to him that yeah. maybe he's not as much of a jerk that, that as you might think. But yeah, we'll talk a, more about him later. A lot more vulnerability to that character. A lot of details, a lot of trivia, John Hughes trivia in our last detail. So uh, why don't you hit me up with some John Hughes trivia? Okay. Well, did you know that nope. John Hughes <laughs> wrote the screenplay for The Breakfast Club in just two days? Two days. I think he had other drafts after that, but two days for the first draft. That is amazing. That is one hell of a writer. Yes. Two days. Man, that's a very productive two days. <laughs> I know. Did you know that in planes, trains, and automobiles, this is just more of a historical thing, that on the train, the person sitting next to Steve Martin is reading a copy of Us magazine, and on the cover of Us magazine, Magazine yeah. is the cast of Family Ties oh, with Michael J. Fox. I was like, oh my God, that is so 80s. That shows the year perfectly. <laughs> These days it would be Kim Kardashian. Yep. Um, uh, did you know <laughs> that the actors who played Ferris's parents got married in real life after the film? 
Oh, they fell in love in a John Hughes movie. And they were so good together. I th- I wanted them to be my parents. Nothing wrong with my my own parents, but I just thought they were so lovely, especially the dad. The dad was cool. He was it's so like, cool. Love you, pal. Yeah. He was He's just so nice. very cool, super nice guy. Well, did you know that Pretty in Pink was filmed in the same LA high school where Grease was oh, filmed? I so didn't know that. It's still the word. Yeah, one of my favorite <laughs> films also. Okay, let's keep going with our fast five at number four is those aren't pillows <laughs> planes <laughs> trains and automobiles released on thanksgiving weekend in november 25th 1987 and after a string of teen comedy set in high school mm-hmm. this was john hughes's first comedy for grown-ups he went from the angst of being a teenager to the angst of being travel. a grown-up yeah yeah the frustrations of travel especially during holiday time i think it's very apt that i watched this plane uh watch this on the plane <laughs> while i was sitting on the tarmac we sat there for an hour and a half to two hours for no apparent oh, reason man. so i watched the entire film but luckily that kept me amused while i was waiting I love Steve Martin and John Candy in these roles. They are the perfect odd couple. Steve Martin is hilarious to me when he loses it. He's hilarious. Like when he gets to the car park and then he sees that the uh, rental car is not where it's supposed to be and he's just throwing things on the ground. He's so great at that physical comedy. John Candy, I think this could be his best performance because that character has so much heart and so much emotion to him. And that happens later in the film. Up to that point, there's a lot of slapstick comedy in this movie absurd situations but then where the movie really finds its footing and and really solidified itself as one of john hughes's best movies was towards the end when uh, spoiler alert i mean it's you know 1987 here but uh when you find out that john when he goes uh i haven't been home in years you find out that his wife died all of a sudden it hits you with an unexpected emotional wallop and the movie just has this big huge heart he takes steve martin takes john candy Mm. home and and the He's meeting his family, and you hear, every time you go away. Uh, (laughs) I also love that scene with uh, John Candy's character when he says, um, I I like me. Uh, Yeah, it's sweet. I like me. My wife likes me. It's like, aww. I love the scene, too, after the rental car. Yeah. And he goes back, and it's the the woman from from First Bureau, the secretary from First Bureau. And he's like, I want my F and bleep and that. And he says, he drops the F-bomb. 18 times wow. before she finally says, you're effed. <laughs> yeah. But that scene was one of the reasons why Steve Martin wanted to do this film. And Planes, Trains, and Automobiles to this day is still one of Steve Martin's very favorite movies that he appeared in. And it's one of the best road trip movies out there and one of the best holiday films out there. And Schmoville loves Planes, Trains, and Automobiles also. Kiernan Wilton says it's my favorite comedy of all time. So, so funny. The chemistry is unmatched in any other comedy I've ever seen. Some come close but never achieve it. The writing is spot on. It balances well-done drama with perfectly executed screwball comedy, comedy like so few films can. Nothing is funnier than watching Steve Martin getting angrier and angrier and angrier as the film progresses. Yeah, it's important that they have these two great characters because they are some crazy situations that they get into one after another after another, but it's totally believable because of the characters and the writing. Well, while well, Cathal Thomas Coleman, a regular in Schmoville, 
Cathal, really? regular profiler. We love uh, we love you, Cathal. Planes, trains, and automobiles just for the ending alone. Emotional stuff. The song, too. Every time you go away. Oh, uh, by the way, by the way, Alicia. So it took uh, it took John Hughes two days to write the screenplay for, for Breakfast, Breakfast Club? Club. It took him a little longer to write the screenplay yeah. for Planes, Trains, and Three days. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Three days. He's incredible. Unbelievable, he this guy. just amazing. Well, one other thing that John Hughes did really well was produce great movies. Yes, he Often did. movies that he wrote, but he just chose not to direct. So let's talk about Pretty in Pink. I know this is one of your faves. I love Pretty in Pink. This movie came out in the in the wintertime of 1986, just a few months before Ferris Bueller. And Pretty in Pink feels so much like a John Hughes movie that he directed, yeah. but it was actually directed by Howard Deutsch, and it, it just has all of the trademark John Hughes moments. It takes place at a high school. Molly Ringwald is in mm-hmm. the film, and it's a love triangle between the rich guy, Blaine, the poor girl, Andy, and then there's Ducky. Ducky John Cryer. John Cryer. Oh, that yeah, scene. Such a great role. Such a great role, and I've never listened to the song Tenderness <laughs> yeah. quite the same way again after well, this movie. once again, uh, the soundtrack. Soundtrack is soundtrack great. Soundtrack was great. Psychedelic really captured Furs, that time. OMD, if you leave. Yeah. It definitely also is up there as one of his best soundtracks. <laughs> Some Kind of Wonderful was also a great movie, again, directed by Howard Deutsch. And in that film, again, A Love Triangle. Yep. Mary Tom Stewart Boy. Masterson and uh, Leah Thompson. Falling for the best mate. Eric Stoltz. Mm-hmm. And Howard Deutsch, this movie, he married his co-star, Leah Thompson. Oh, so they yeah. married the star. Yeah, the that's star right. Then they've, they've had a daughter and she's an actress as well. So there you go. I think John go. Hughes was quite the um, little cute? matchmaker. Oh, a little matchmaker. And then finally, uh, a, a big film, Home Alone, came out in 1990. Boy, he shoots, he scores, directed by Chris Columbus. This movie made $533 million worldwide. It went into the Guinness, Guinness World Book of Records. Records. And was the highest grossing movie of 1990. And it gave birth to... Ah! Macaulay Culkin. Oh, I love this movie. A family holiday film that I used to watch all the time. Now you're a bit older, I realize that it is actually quite violent. And how scary would it, it be is. to have these these robbers come after you and say they're going to kill you? But at the time, it's just so much fun and kind of a dream as a child to be left alone for a weekend and have a bunch of money and be able to order giant pizza and then set up all those booby traps. But because he's left alone, doesn't it kind of feel a little, and I mean a little, like Ferris Bueller? A little. Where he's like got all this yeah. freedom, like, woohoo! And it I comes got the up place with really interesting inventions. He's very, very resourceful. We should also give a shout out to National Lampoon's Vacation. Yes, that's right. That was the, the first film. And, the first one. <laughs> and it came from, as we mentioned in It's a Wonderful Life, it came from the magazine National, National Lampoon. Lampoon. And, and uh, that's a great one. You know, so, so okay. We have movies produced by John Hughes mm-hmm. that he wrote and he directed and a lot of the films that we're talking about we're already mentioning the great characters but there are other great characters that mm-hmm. deserve a mention in our segment we call The Player Yes. so let's start with Richard Vernon Richard Paul Vernon. Gleason from Breakfast Club yeah yeah. as we said don't mess, don't mess with the bull young man you'll, you'll get, the, you'll get horns. the horns the guy that raided Barry Manilow's wardrobe <laughs> Paul Gleason is the reason why this character is elevated from being a simple jerk he, he really adds a lot to the role I know during filming he said that he uh, stayed away from the other actors so that oh. he could have that distance and there are a few moments as the character I mentioned one before where the door slams and you see him kind of sigh off what just happened and then the conversation he has with Kyle 
Carl, right. who at the start of the film we see was Man of the Year in his time. Now he's the janitor, and obviously Richard Vernon was his teacher. So in a way, you could see how Vernon, he really wants the best for his kids. He's trying his heart. He's not trying to be a jerk. And this, that scene that you're describing right there is a perfect mirror to what the teens are going through in the library. Mm. Because they could have just left... Vernon, like a like a villain type of character, like a baddie, but to show that he has the same sort of insecurities that the teens do was a great way to just sort of balance the film that, hey, whether you're a teenager or a grown-up, I mean, these guys, both of them, Carl and Vernon, are, are have lost dreams. You know, yeah. their lives did not turn out the way they wanted to. But another character that, for for controversial reasons, has gotten uh, a lot more Good attention luck, in recent yeah. years is Long Duck Dong from Sixteen Candles. Candles. Getty Watanabe played the character. He's an exchange student, and he gets a very quick lesson in what it means to be an American. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, the character is very funny, but it obviously... Uh, huge stereotype the, uh, <laughs> yeah. the gong that every time he says his name that he walks in to uh, the the bad English um, but he has had a, a an influence over the years I know that there's an 80s cover band called Long Duck Dong uh, who can forget the dialogue I mean you know oh she's getting married married yes married sheesh yeah. Yeah. or, or she get to, when he's dancing with the, the tall girl and she goes what's your what's your name he goes Dong what's your first name Long, Long. What, what's your middle name Duck. <laughs> I mean, just, uh, where is my automobile? Automobile? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he so played it really, funny. really well. But, uh, you know, it's such a funny character. And then there's, of course, Edward, Edward Rooney. R. Rooney, Dean of Students. Nine times. times. From Ferris Bueller. Now, here is a jerk who really revels in it. And so much fun to watch him try to track down Ferris and then fail miserably. <laughs> it's fun to see him get dragged through the mud, literally physically abused and, and emotionally abused and, and you're cheering for that all the way along. You don't want Ferris to be caught. He he really gets his comeuppance, doesn't he? Yes. And you're just rooting for that to happen up until the end when he gets on the bus to the sound of mm -hmm. oh, yeah. Now I wanted to mention these great brackets that have been happening on our Facebook page. Yes, please do. Profiles with Malone and Mance on the Schmozno Network. Make sure you like that page if you want to get involved. So they decided to do the favorite John Hughes movies. So it got, there was several, several going on, lots of different battles, but it got down to Home Alone 2 versus Christmas Vacation, then Ferris Bueller's Day Off versus The Breakfast Club. In the end, it was Christmas Vacation versus The Breakfast Club and The Breakfast Club won. The Breakfast Club won. That is good to know. Yeah, yes. Big thanks to Leanne LeCoutier, who's also known as the Photoshop Queen of Schmover. She does such great work. Leanne. And she ran those brackets. And also thanks to C Steve Zissou and Rasika and Dan Skip Allen, everyone who helps out. We really and appreciate everyone it. Everyone does help out. And here's your chance to help out too. You know, we really, really need your help. So, so take this moment. If you are already not subscribing, if you're already not a subscriber on iTunes, please go to iTunes now. Subscribe to Profiles. Even if you think you are already a subscriber, Double check because you might not be. We had some problems with it. So go back to iTunes, subscribe to Profiles, and more importantly, 
rate and review us. We want to keep coming back every week to do these. We love doing it. We know you love it too. So please rate and and review us. These are very, very crucial. Subscribe to our YouTube page, which is... uh, uh, it's youtube.com slash schmoes no podcast they're up to ten thousand subscribers which is great we that's want to great keep building keep building that and definitely go to our facebook page profiles with malona mance on the schmoes, schmoes no network, network the longest title ever the longest title ever <laughs> but like it and share it with your friends and come to think of it share our show with your friends too so that everyone can see it and we can just get more and more schmoes involved and we love doing these brackets yeah and alicia and i love interacting with everyone all all the profile profilers Hello. out there and make sure you follow us on Twitter Alicia Mal- at Alicia Malone and at Movie Mance yeah and oh, I am so excited because we have uh, several big guests calling in today so yes, we, we might be able to sneak in our quiz show before we get to the first let's one let's give it a whirl why okay. don't you hit me up I'll hit you with this one okay so what was the cake in 16 candles made out of was it plaster or Cardboard or foam? Uh, it wasn't real cake. It was not a real cake. Obviously, it was not a real cake. If you're asking me what was it made out of, yeah. I'm going to say uh, cardboard. Yeah, that's right. Cardboard. But it looked delicious. It did. It really did. And it really looked perfect, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, That's because perfect. it was cardboard. Yeah. <laughs> well, my, my question for you, Alicia, is what was the name of the restaurant where Ferris, Cameron, and Sloan had lunch and almost ran into Ferris' Ooh, dad? The Sausage King of the Chicago. Chicago. You are Abe Froman? Yeah. Abe uh, Froman? I weep for the future. <laughs> was it Chez Nu? Yeah. Was it Chez Key? Yeah. Was it Kamsa? Or was it Chez Du Jour? Oh, I don't actually know. What was the first one? Chez Key? Chez Nu? Chez Nu? Chez Key? Kamsa? Chez Du Jour? I say it's Shane It's shaky. Oh, I was almost gonna go with that one. It was Damn supposed it. to be like a play on shakies, like oh, shakies pizza. Right, gotcha. No, uh, so there, there you go. go. You learn something new every single day. Um, should we keep going with our fast? Yeah, let's keep three? going with fast five. Fast and coming five, in at number, number three. three on our fast five, JT is. Uh, oh, 16, 16 candles. candles came out on May 4th, 1984. Now we're getting into the good stuff. The top three movies here in our Fast Five on John Hughes. This movie had a very quirky sensibility, made a star out of Molly Ringwald, mm. and she became really John Hughes's muse over the next couple of years. But what what a nightmare. You know, your parents and, and, and even your grandparents forget who live for this stuff, they forget your birthday. Some great awkward moments in this too. I love the, the grandma going, ooh, fresh, got her boobies in. Uh, and the oh, hands so come in. Oh my gosh, so funny. So this was the directorial debut for John Hughes. He was inspired to write it after he saw the headshot of Molly Ringwald. And he wrote the role specifically for her. He wrote this film... In one weekend. One weekend. Another boy. I know, another one. I, I feel so unproductive now. And after- it's, it's a formula that we, we see time and time again, but but he really made it his own. And, and he was someone that started this whole formula. I like how it has the stereotypes. It's got the jock, the, the awkward girl and the geeks, but it's done with a lot of heart and the writing is 
was so brilliant and the casting is perfect you know the casting of Jake Ryan which went to Michael uh, Schofling it was supposed to be Viggo Mortensen but oh. then Michael walked in and he was as John Hughes said he played it straight like a real human and he felt like he'd found his Jake Ryan the well, dream boat did you Alicia did you ever find your Jake Ryan growing up in high school uh, I didn't actually during high school I mean I was just a bit of a geek and I, I liked my horses so I didn't really pay <laughs> attention to boys I had a few boyfriends but I, I didn't I wasn't lusting after the guys like my friends were so there was no one that I was like oh my god he's dreamy yeah. What about you? Well, I didn't have a Jake Ryan. Yeah. But I had a Jane Ryan. Yeah. Uh, her name was Rana, and uh, she was a cheerleader. And that all automatically put her off limits because back in the day, and probably even now, the geek just did not go after the cheerleader. She never knew how I felt about her. Aww. I mean, like, we grew up together, so she like, we knew each other. We mm-hmm. went to elementary school. We went to middle school. We went to high school together. We even went to Penn State together, but we just, like, you know, that campus was huge. I hardly ever saw her. But when we were in high school and she became a cheerleader, you know, people sort of blossom in school, mm-hmm. in high school, and I never told her how I felt, but... If she's listening now, she, she'll she know. Oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> it's all good. Well, it's interesting. When this film was shot, so Molly Ringwald was 15, Anthony Michael Hall was 15, but Michael Schofling, who played Jake Ryan, was 23. Oh, wow. He was a lot older than the others. Well, at this point, ladies and gentlemen, we are very, very, very excited to have on the phone with us now from New York, where he is on Broadway in It's Only a Play. Please welcome Matthew Broderick. Matthew, you are on the phone. Woo! Profiles, you're talking to Alicia and Scott. Okay. Hello. Welcome. It's so great to I, talk to you. Thank you. Well, the, the qu- first question we have for you, Matthew, is, you know, Ferris Bueller's Day Off is still regarded as one of the all-time classic movies. Why do you think, why do you think it still holds up? Um, I don't, that's a good question. I, uh, I mean, I think it's very entertaining and funny and, you know, uh, it seems to translate to a lot of different types of people, too. I, I guess everybody wants a day off or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, or they can, it's very relatable, because I hear people from all over the world tell me, you know, in all sorts of languages, that they, uh, how much it meant to them, so. Yeah, I, I, from Australia, and I used to watch it every Uh time I was sick. I just loved this movie so much. I still do. It's still so much fun. When you first read the screenplay, what did you think of it? Um, I thought it was hilarious and very original, and, um, uh, I had just—I barely—I had just started to hear of John Hughes. I think I had seen uh, Sixteen Candles or something, and maybe Breakfast Club, and so I knew he was like they—they they referred to him as the Spielberg of teen movies or something. Oh. I remember, and uh, and then I read it and I thought it was a terrific part. And um, I was doing a play at the time where I was talking to the audience. I remember the fact that the character talked to the audience. I thought, does this mean I'm going to have to talk to the audience every time I? do a movie or a play. I'm <laughs> concerned about that. But um, I loved it. And then I met, I think I flew out and met John shortly after that. Well, what was what was it like when you met him? Like, what was your first impression of him? And then later when you were making the film, what made him different than other directors you've worked with before and especially since? Yeah. Well, he was, he was very, he was very quiet for one thing. It, it took a while to get to know him, you know. He was a, he was pretty shy. He kind of observed people. He didn't he wasn't a jump in type of person. 
Um, but as you got to know him, the more you got to know him, the more uh, he, he was actually very talkative and very, very, very funny. So I remember spending, he's the kind of person you could talk to for, and several hours could go by on the phone. He just loved to talk. And, uh, and he was brilliantly funny. So it was, uh, he was a very unique person because he was, uh, seemed very quiet and maybe even could seem chilly to some people. But then after a little while, he was quite the opposite. There's some great dialogue in there, but was he open to improvisation? Um, most of the time, yeah. I mean, we always did his, I would say 99% of what you see in the movie is exactly from his script. But we would, we definitely would improvise. Uh, some scenes were kind of made up on the spot, and those we did improvise. We always did one of exactly his dialogue, and mostly that's what's in the movie. But like, I think you brought up the, the clarinet thing was made up. We made that up there just because there was a clarinet sitting there in yeah. <laughs> the movie. And um, you know, the towel on my head was just because that's how my sister used the towel, and <laughs> I thought of that. Like he was very open. He loved anything you brought, any idea you had. Well, he was incredibly happy with. So particularly particularly scenes when I was alone, as I recall. Um, he was ready for he would let you just try anything we just pre-associated basically well I was talking earlier in the show about how I'm, I'm a huge Beatles fan uh, Matthew and mm-hmm. I gotta tell you my favorite scene in the movie is the Don Shane twist and shout parade scene and I gotta ask right. what was it like filming that scene was it as much fun to shoot that scene as it still is to watch <laughs> well it was different you know like the feeling of shooting is always uh, you know it took two days it took um Two weekends, as, as I recall. Wow. Uh, one, I think one day each weekend, but one was the real parade, and then we, then we had uh, just regular people and, and did and did a pretend parade. So the whole end is like the huge crowd is is all pretend. That was all just people showing up for shooting. Um, <laughs> what I remember about it is I remember that we had a very careful choreography. I busted my knee at the beginning of the shoot, so I couldn't barely do anything. And then when we shot, um, eventually they were like, just do whatever crosses your mind. So half of what you see in there is just us being idiots. (laughs) Others of it is very choreographed, but it was kind of a mix of of those two things. And, uh, it was great fun. Anytime there's a big crowd cheering, you, you can't help but think maybe it's maybe it's for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, when you were filming, did you have any sense that it was going to be as big of a hit it was as it ended up being? No, I mean that's always uh, a mystery to me. Um, I mean, I hoped it was it was it was certainly fun to shoot, and it seemed like it had all the good ingredients. You know, and great cast and, um, and John. Uh, so I had, I was very hopeful about it. And I also knew that, you know, he had a great track record, John Hughes. So I can't pretend that none of us were, were hoping that it would be a pit, you know? Mm. Um, but you never know. And, and it wasn't until I saw it with an audience in a real movie theater at the preview, I think. But I saw it with an actual real audience, not a not just people, not friends, and that, and that's when I thought, oh, this is I think this might be a hit movie. Wow, that's fantastic! Yeah. But it, it was yeah. a big hit. So, so the two part question I have for you, Matthew, is this: 
How come Ewan John never did a Ferris Bueller sequel? And the second part to that is, do you think that a sequel is still in the cards? Can we someday see a sequel to Ferris Bueller? Um, well, I, it, it's, um, I'm not exactly sure why we didn't. We talked about a sequel uh, at, shortly after, a couple of years after, but John was very busy. He was, he, made a, he was making a lot of movies, and I was busy too. And um, we never quite got to a final idea of what it would be. It always seemed to be like it would just be repeating the first movie. So, in some ways, I think it was it was nice to just leave it as a mm. as a one thing. I don't know if it would be quite as special if it was repeated in in different locations and you know college or work or it seems to be about that that age and that part of your life. But having said all that, now I look back and I think, why well, we should have done more of those because it was you know why not yeah. <laughs> at the time I thought at the time I thought it's such a good thing to maybe to just leave it as itself. That's what I thought. Yeah, well, I... Oh, gosh, I love this movie so much. And uh, mm. it just had such a great energy about it. And the dialogue mm. always... That was something that John Hughes was so yeah. good at. What would you say is John's legacy? John's legacy? Well, you know, I, it's it, the thing about it is it's 30 years or whatever, 25 years. I don't know how many years it is. And... Uh, people still talk about it. So mm. that's that's quite a... Particularly with a movie about teenagers, those are usually kind of, I think, forgotten pretty quickly. And I think a lot of people at the time would have thought that about John, but um, certainly turned out not to be true. That's why we're doing the show. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I think his legacy... I don't know what his legacy is, but, but I think he, he translates through different times and different countries and everything he was just one of those people who he knows what young people are thinking well other than Ferris Bueller's Day Off Matthew do you have a favorite John Hughes movie (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, well I don't like to I don't want to offend any of the other movies but I I like I I mean I do really like all of them the first one I saw and I thought was incredibly funny was Sixteen Candles Mm. And the Breakfast Club, I guess, and then Plane Trains, Automobiles, I love too. Yes. I guess yep. that one maybe. Yep. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, we talked about that's that as one of our best. Yes. But listen, Matthew, we we are so grateful for to you for calling in for being so generous with your time, and we know you're on the on Broadway right now doing it's only a play with with your longtime friend Nathan Lane and Stocker Channing. Yep. So please do have a great show tonight and break a leg. And thank you thank so you. much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for thanks a lot for having me. Okay, have a great day. Thanks. You too. Bye. Yay! <laughs> Matthew Broderick! Teenage dreams coming true! Woo! All That's right, so cool. that is so cool. That's so amazing oh my to gosh. talk to Ferris himself. We were talking to Ferris himself. This show really is a true celebration of the work of John Hughes. Yeah. And to, to have uh, Matthew Broderick on the show, this is really, really... So very, very exciting. cool and exciting. I didn't want to put anything on, on Facebook until he called in just know, in case right. something never know. happened last minute. I mean, how cool is that to, for him to call in from New York? He's about to do a play. I think he goes on in another hour or so. Yeah, in, like 50 in, minutes. In New York. And he took the time.
time out to talk about John Hughes and what a great, great memories he shared just about how quiet he was, but then what a legacy he had. So oh, great. Yeah. So awesome. great. I don't even remember where the heck we were. We were talking we were about 16, 16 candles. candles. Oh, wait, that's right. We were going to talk about, uh, oh, Schmoville, Schmoville our Schmoville <laughs> reactions that we get from our fan bo- uh, Facebook page of Profiles with Malona Mance on the Schmoville Network. Go to Facebook, like our page, and share it with your friends. Scott will come and, and get you. Our friend Mladen Kulik says about 16 Candles, it shows you how difficult it is being a girl. Also, boys flirting all the time with very bad jokes and moves. <laughs> true, true, and true. Well, Michael Siskowick says, I w- was initially tipped off about 16 Candles from my older brother, who I didn't relate to at all during high school, even though we shared the same bedroom. He was into working, he was a plumber's helper and cars, while I was into mastering guitar and girls. I didn't think he had any sensibilities about teenage romance so his recommendation about 16 candles was a revelation really cool to hear that that was matthew broderick's first entry into his first blood with john hughes that is very cool it was mine too yeah yeah. well listen you know we are at a point where we could either roll on our next interview Mm -hmm. and uh or we can wait till after something else might happen and do it then what do you think we should do i think we should wait let's wait just in case just in case well then that brings us to our fast five number number two. two which is Life moves pretty fast. Perfect timing. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. Yay, first Bueller's Day Off! I'm still spinning out that we spoke to Matthew Broderick. I mean, I spoke to him at a a junket for another film he did, but somehow hearing him talk about Ferris and talking to us on our little show profiles, that makes me so happy. Isn't it great? So cool. So cool. Well, this movie came out on June 11th, 1986. One week before I graduated high school, I have to say. And Matthew Broderick was nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Actor in a Comedy. So there you go. And I got to tell you, yes, I already told you how I really related to this movie. Mm -hmm. And one of the scenes that really just like was like, whoa, was when when Matthew, when Ferris breaks the fourth wall, he's talking to the camera. He says, I don't know what to do about Sloan. She's a year behind me. What's going to happen when I go off to college? And there I am sitting in the movie theater watching this film with this girl I've been dating for about eight months, wondering the same exact thing. And I'm she just was like, a year behind you. She was a year behind oh, me. Wow. So I'm like looking around, feeling like, am I in the movie here? Or is this like, <laughs> is this really happening that this movie is just speaking to me in so many ways? But, you know, we've already talked about how this movie is so vibrant and infectious and so fun. And mm-hmm. Ferris is just so full of confidence and he's so resourceful yeah. and he works so hard to take the day off it almost would have been better for him to just go to school <laughs> oh he's such a cool character and i kept saying on the phone just saying with matthew broderick about the dialogue because there are some great moments the one that we played just then life moves pretty fast i think this film to me is all about finding the joy in your life making the most out of every moment and even though Ferris at times can seem like a bit of a selfish character he at the end of it all just wants to give Cameron a a good day something good that happened to him that day and he's such a good friend this uh, character Ferris Bueller I think everyone either wanted to be Ferris or date Ferris or have a friend like Ferris he's a righteous dude he's a righteous dude as Grace says well I I sort of had a theory when I was rewatching the film recently and because it had been a while since I'd seen it and definitely not since I've been reviewing movies which completely changed the perspective I now have on film but it occurred to me that if Ferris is the brains of this movie then Cameron 
is the heart of it mm. because really it's the scenes with Cameron, particularly the scene with the Ferrari mm-hmm. where he sends it right off the Come window. On. Bam. What did I do? Yeah. You know, that was the, that was a powerful scene in a movie that just could have just been fun. And that was it, but there was so much to it. And then, uh, there's a theory that, that I read over the years it's a bit far-fetched, but we've all, always talked about, you and me, Alicia, how we love when people read into films. Yeah, when they care so much about a movie that they go really deep into it. might not be true, but I love the thinking. Well, what are they thinking with this movie? <laughs> uh, I remember reading something about um, Ferris not being real. Not being real, right. That Cameron that Cameron dreamed up Ferris. It was a figment of his imagination. Kind of like a Tyler Durden thing. Yeah, Fight Club, <laughs> but without the violence. Yes, <laughs> kind of someone that Cameron wanted to be. Yeah, Fight Club as a, as a comedy. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that, that it was like sort of the person that he wanted to be to help him deal with just all the problems he had, especially with his dad. Mm-hmm. And uh, But listen, uh, the, the cast was great in this movie. The, the chemistry between Matthew Broderick and Alan Ruck and Mia Sarah mm. and uh, this movie... Boy, just another another example of John Hughes, how prolific he was and how fast he was. He wrote the script in six days. Wow, six days. Six days. And it all takes place in one day. And what a day they have. I remember just trying to figure out the timeline. Like, how did they manage to get so much in they they went to a baseball game and they went to a restaurant and and they were in the pool for a while and then suddenly he's the running it's like 10 to 6 or 5 to 6 and he has to run back home uh so many funny moments like uh charlie sheen apparently he oh, stayed yeah. up for 48, 48 hours. hours so he could get that strung out look and uh that the, the, the nurse coming to the door like i heard that you, you were, were feeling, feeling ill you know. headaches fever and a chill yeah, keep very, going very the nurse who likes to, to slam. slam. Yeah, I love the scene at the so baseball great. game. Swing batter, batter, swing batter, Kennedy, 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 Kennedy swing batter. I watched this movie so many times. Uh, it was such a dream as a teenager to to have this kind of day, and they figured out that the day that he took off. If it happened in real life, it would have been June the 5th, 1985, because that was when there was a Braves versus Cubs baseball game going on, the one that they go to. And during it, Matthew was 23 years old. Alan Ruck was 29. 29? Yeah, it was just Mia, who was Sloane, who was the teenager in it. And also one really great Easter egg about this film. If you watch it again, take a look at all the license plates on all the cars because they all mean something. So the license plate on Cameron's dad's car. Nervous. Nervous. The license plate on Ferris's dad's car is M Mom, like Mr. Mom. Oh. And Jeannie's car is TBC, which is the, the Breakfast, Breakfast Club. Club. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Well, the question is, okay, did you ever pull a Ferris Bueller and take uh, the day off? I did. And What did you do? <laughs> so giggy. I went to see a movie. Well, that's cool. Doesn't surprise you that I, I didn't do anything cool. I just was like, I want to go see a movie today. So off I went. And there's something quite magical about it. I mean, kids stay in school. Right. Stay yes. In stay in school. Stay in school. Go to school. <laughs> but there's something magical when you're a kid and you, you take the day off and you're not supposed to. And there's this whole world going on outside of school. And you see people going about their daily lives. And you're like, oh, how cool would it be if you didn't have to go to school every day? 
Well, I, I didn't really, I don't think anybody really did what Ferris did the way he did it. <laughs> but in the occasions that I did sort of pull a Ferris and fake being sick and then my parents went off to work, I would ride my bike to the local comic book store, which was about six miles away, <laughs> which was pretty <laughs> far. Like but I would I would ride to the comic book store and I would just spend a lot of time there. And then I'd go next door. They had this place called Aldo's Pizzerama. And the, the, <laughs> still, I think, the best pizza in North America. It's Pizzerama. It is Aldo's Pizzerama. It is just the best pizza. But, you know, nothing like really bad. Although I did, just to sidetrack, I did pull a risky business. Yeah. And when my parents were out of town, well, this is kind of like John Hughes because Jake Ryan did this in 16 Candles. Mm -hmm. My parents went out of town. I had this party and I told my friends to bring over beer and to just tell some of their Naughty. friends about the party. Alicia, it turned into what Jake Ryan's party turned into because like, mess. they invited their friends. You're and then under they the glass table oh, going, my God. ah, help me, get me out of here, Jake. <laughs> but everybody, so many people came. And then my next door neighbor, this guy, Frank, he comes over and he goes, what the hell are you doing? And he like kicked everybody out. My parents were going to come home the next day. And I cleaned up like, like crazy to this day. They don't know? Well, they, they will now because my dad does yeah, listen to this. Yeah, your dad listens to Profile. Great. Well, well, Dad. Well, back in, in 1986. I know. My mom's going to listen to this and go, which day did you take off and what movie did you see? We are busted. We are so busted. So busted. Well, Schmoville loves Ferris Bueller's day off. Of course. Of course they do. Nick Ward says Bueller. 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 Bueller is my favorite Hughes film of all time. As a fairly introverted person, it's so much fun to vicariously come along with Ferris and his gang on their adventures in truancy. <laughs> I always wished I was smooth enough to skip school nine times, times and never get caught. But in truth, I'm much more of a Cameron. Though if I had a teacher like Ben Stein, I might give it a shot. Well, Sam Mache kind of sums it up very, very short and sweet. It says, when I watch Ferris Bueller's Day Off, it is basically a day off from life. And then our friend Tyler Myers, Tyler. amazing profiler in the Schmoville universe, says, I love Ferris Bueller's Day Off because it's hilarious and interesting. Uh, a look at kids and dreams of doing skipping school. The film is filled with funny moments, fun characters, and memorable quotes. But what really makes Ferris Bueller so special is that even though it's about a teen who cuts school, it does delve into never wanting to let the good times go and how someone may react when it's time to move on. It's not just my favorite John Hughes film, but it's one of my favorite movies of all time. Save Ferris. Save Ferris. Save Ferris. I love it. Well, let's get into our Fast Five number one. Oh, wait. Be wait, before we got? do that, before we do that, I just wanted to point out, I think we should point out some of the underrated. Oh, yeah. John Hughes movies. Yes, yeah, so I I say that she's having a baby. Definitely underrated. Definitely underrated. That is number. That's in our fast five. But just in, in terms of a uh, uh, weird science mm -hmm. is a movie that uh, uh, that is uh, uh, very <laughs> underrated. Message no, there? no message is there. Okay. Everything is cool. Uh, it's uh, weird science. Claudia Rose Weldon. Yeah, our don't friend. we love Claudia Rose Weldon? We love you. You're yeah. an awesome profiler. Weird science for underrated, despite the questionable ethics, morals, experiments, and the plots. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it has an undeniable charm. 
to it that makes the idea of making a woman from a Barbie doll acceptable, turning a guy into a troll-esque monster, being something you root for, and making Anthony Michael Hall the ultimate 80s nerd. <laughs> On that subject, Hughes goes out of his way to depict nerds as they really are, smart yet awkward, and mostly funny people. That's true. Now, one that I haven't actually seen is Career Opportunities. I saw it. And Brian Crowley Chandler, who we also love, said that that is one of her favorite John Hughes movies. Jennifer Connelly is stunning. Dermot Mulroney is a disgusting criminal. <laughs> and Frank Whaley is a hilarious habitual liar. What's, What's not, not to love? love? What I is not to, to love indeed? One. But just some other films like um, Christmas Vacation. Yeah. That's a, that's a, it's better than European Vacation. Yes. Not as good as the first Vacation. Yeah. And you know, I, I know that, uh, our friend, uh, Claudia Rose Walton thinks that Weird Science is, is underrated. I never really got Weird Science. Mm. I think compared to like 16 Candles and Breakfast Club, uh, and, and First Bueller, it just seemed a little kind of silly. Yeah, I rewatched it the other day. I, th- I thought it was a lot of fun. Um, it's just got that, that Frankenstein, like, she's alive kind of vibe to it. And it's very much of its time now. It's a bit dated. But I, I know, and I know we talked about Pretty in Pink as well. I really love Pretty in Pink. Yes. I mean, it's just that, again, of course, I'm, I'm gravitating towards the, the, the geek in the movie, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Ducky, played by uh, John Cryer. John Cryer. But uh, the soundtrack is so great. And, you know, at the end of the movie, I don't know if you noticed that at the prom, uh, Anthony, uh, Andrew McCarthy, his hair looked a little different. Mm-hmm. So I was looking online and apparently he, they reshot the ending. They reshot the prom so that An- uh, Andrew McCarthy had already started shooting another movie where he, where he got his cut, haircut really oh, short. So they had to put a wig on? They had to put a wig on him. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I love the song by the psychedelic furs. Okay. Now we can get into our fast five number okay, one. Okay. Fast five number one is. I want to be just like you. I figure all I need is a lobotomy and some tights. tights. You wear tights? No, I wear the standard uniform. Tights. Tights, okay. The Breakfast Club. The Breakfast Club came out on February 15th, 1985. We are just a few months shy of the 30th anniversary of The Breakfast Club. And if you were there when it came out, you probably feel just as old as I do right about now. (laughs) Set in one day and pretty much one One room. One location. One of the interesting things about The Breakfast Club, something I love, is that it's one of the greatest high school movies ever, without a doubt. But you never see the characters at school. You see them at school on a Saturday when they're at detention, you don't see them with their friends or in their classes, but you get such a sense of it and you, you know about every one of these characters because of the brilliant writing. They are the stereotypes and I've got them on my t-shirt. Brain, the athlete, athlete the, the princess, princess, the, the rebel, rebel and the, the basket, basket case. case. They start off the day thinking they have nothing in common because they're from these such different groups. By the end of the day, they realize they have a lot in common and they are much more than the box that they're put in. And it does represent everybody. All the all the basic food groups are well represent, yeah, represented. But this is a movie that really hit the nail on the head on what it is still like to be a teen in high school, where you are hating your home life, where you're dealing with peer pressure mm. and alienation and fitting in, and just generally just trying to figure yourself out. I mm-hmm. wouldn't go back to high school for all the tea in China, I swear to God. Yeah, there's so much pressure at that time because you're told you have to figure out what you want to be after school while you're still at school. You're trying to navigate through the class system that happens at a high school and you're trying to be understood by teachers and, and your parents as well and you might have a lot going on at home and then you have to go to school and, and study and do well and there's so much that this explores and 
Once again, John Hughes and the dialogue, uh, I just love. There's so many quotable lines in this. I still know every single word. I annoyed my friend. Um, I rewatched it, you know, just a couple of weeks ago and then again yesterday. And I still know all the little words and all the little sound effects, like when Bender sits down in between Claire and Andrew and he goes, whoo. Like just stupid <laughs> things like that, and no one can watch it with me because they're like, "Can you stop quoting every single line?" I'm like, "I can't because it's so good." I lo- I love the scene, Claire. just like little moments, little moments, like when Bender like puts the knife on the yeah. chair, and then from off the <laughs> off the screen, that. you see Alice Sheedy just like take with her it. hand take it away. So well, many great uh, the lines dancing. in this movie. The dancing, oh, the dancing is great. That. I mean, it's so fun. So but I uh, love uh, if I lose my temper, you're totaled, man. Totaled. Yeah. Totally. totally, yeah, <laughs> totally, yeah. Two hits, me hit you, you hit the floor. Oh, he's so good. But so, so many great, good. so many great quotes in other John Hughes and movies so too. And so much heart to it as well. This had such a great emotional impact. The scene when they're all talking and they start to connect and they they reveal why they why they are there at detention. Oh, it's, it really tugs at your heartstrings. It really does, and it's a movie that, like you said, they start off totally different mm-hmm. and they end up a lot more. To more similar yeah, than they, than they expect. really expected, and uh, it, it's just I remember when I saw the movie. It was the it was the month it came out. It was in February of, of 1985, and I was working my first job. I waited tables while I was in high school and college. And I remember my friends came by where I was working at Ben and Irv's restaurant in Northeast Philadelphia, and I was still had I was just about to finish work and be done. It was like eight o'clock, and they were all going to the movies. Mm-hmm. And I had seen Sixteen Candles already, but I didn't know what it John Hughes movie really was because John Hughes with The Breakfast Club, he really hit his stride mm. and he defined his voice because it wasn't quirky like 16 Candles was, but it was his deepest movie. Mm. Even to this day, it's his deepest movie. There's some funny moments in there. There's tension when you think they're going to get caught. So we go to the theater and we're all sitting there and I was a little tired because I worked a double and I was just beat. But uh, as the movie progressed and got underway, you know, we all looked at each other like, are you watching this movie? Yeah. Because other teen comedies at the time, like Fast Times at Ridgemont High or Porky's, you know, or Valley Girl, you know, those were good, but they don't, they didn't have the depth. The only, again, the only one I really thought that did have the depth was, was Risky Business. It's such a simple story. Uh, you know, no crazy special effects or anything that we see these days. Right. No one with special powers. Just simple, but so relatable. But is there, can you think of a movie today or in the last maybe 15, 20 years that sort of tried to replicate that formula mm. of a John Hughes movie and can came close? I mean, I was kind of thinking about maybe American Pie. Yeah, I was trying to think of like Judd Apatow. I know that he was really inspired by John Hughes and he did his last film, which was Drillbit Taylor. Um, but it's just hard to replicate. There's just something special about a John Hughes movie that no one else could do. Well, do you think if you, if you could see, if you could do a remake any John Hughes movie, what would it be? Oh, none. None. Okay, no. that's the best answer. Sacrilege. Yes. How dare you? <laughs> you cannot. You cannot. This uh, film, of course, launched what they called the Brat Pack, which then later on expanded to just about any hot actor in the 80s. Well, 
On that note, just as we announced that our number one John Hughes movie is The Breakfast Club. My favorite. Joining us on the phone right now, Profiles with Manson Malone. We are proud to have on the phone with us Judd Nelson. Judd, you were talking to Scott and Alicia. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Uh, this is like a, this is a teenage dream coming true. I never thought I'd get to speak to Bender. So awesome. <laughs> well, listen, Judd, thank you so much for joining us. And as, as when we talked on the phone, uh, I was mentioning how February is the 30th anniversary of the Breakfast Club. And why do you think it still holds up? And why do you think that, that we're naming it our number one John Hughes movie? Well, I think that the script is incredibly good. And it has stood the test of time. It's like a fast horse. You don't have to use your whip. You just have to hold on. Wow. <laughs> and he wrote the screenplay we're reading in, in just two days, which is incredible for the amount yeah, of layers draft, it has. The yeah, first, first draft. draft. Yeah. Well, he, told, he told Emilio and I that in his house. He said oh. he wrote the first draft in over a weekend. And at the same time, we both said, first draft, how many drafts do you have? <laughs> and, he, and he had about four of them, and we asked if we could look at them, and we just sat there on the carpet in his living room and read through all the other stuff, and he let us take stuff from earlier drafts and put it in the shooting script. Oh, awesome. Wow, that is great. Yeah, but- he was really, he was really uh, a great collaborator and a, and a great friend of, of the actors. Well, how did you come to be cast as Bender? And did you have any idea that Bender would grow to be so popular? Well, I had—I I did not know that uh, it would become a, a very popular character. But um, when I read the script, I knew it was a great script. I didn't know. You kind of hope that all great scripts will become great movies, but you're never really in charge of that aspect of it. But I auditioned for it in New York, and then they invited me to audition for it again in uh, California. And I think there are maybe five or six people that they're still seeing. But I didn't know until a few days later that uh, that they decided on me. Wow, so exciting. Thrilled. So exciting. Did you go to like a high school to blend in and sort of, uh, you know, get into character, so to speak? Well, what was great is we had a legitimate rehearsal period before we started shooting. And um, part of that, we could spend at a nearby high school that had been arranged for us to go and hang out if we wanted um, Molly and Michael were um, going to high school. You know, they they had to go to their tutors at least half the day. Uh, Allie didn't want to go back to a high school. She said she remembered it fine and she didn't like it. She didn't want to go back. Emilio went for like a day, and he was uh, recognized from the outsiders. <laughs> oh yeah. So uh, he couldn't really hang out there. And I went and um, uh, for about like a week, for a few hours a day, I'd go there and. Uh, Get stoned, buy beer. Be Bender. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he is my favorite character. Did you have any idea that Bender would become so popular and so iconic? Well, in the script, he's the only character that's been to detention before, so he has that bit of an advantage. But um, my feeling when I read it was that it was such a it was the first time that, and it's really a testament to John Hughes. That it's the first time that a movie where the main characters are younger are not portrayed as being less than mm. characters that are older. You know, until John Hughes, if it was a like a quote kids movie, that was a pejorative term. That was a way to insult the movie. 
And uh, as a result of his films, it's no longer possible, really, to judge a film's substantive depth or the value of its content, you know, simply by uh, counting how old the characters are. Well, mm-hmm. as as a filmmaker, Sorry. as a filmmaker, John Hughes really hit his stride with The Breakfast Club. That's really where he found his voice. But the question is, like, what was it like working with him? What made him different from other directors you worked with before or since? Well, to begin with, I didn't know that this would be so rare, but he, he liked us. <laughs> um, I did not know that, that, that there are not as many directors out there who actually like actors. Um, and uh, he liked us. He let us make some changes to the text. He wanted it to sound as authentic as possible. Um, one of the great things was we were shooting, when we were shooting a lot of the Anthony Michael Hall stuff where he's getting stoned, <laughs> they would have the big 1,500-foot magazine on the camera and we'd be shooting Michael and the camera and, and the film would run out. And we all knew that the film had run out because you hear the click, click, click uh, of yeah. the camera just going without the film in it. And John and I and Emilio and Allie and Molly, we just watched Michael continue on. <laughs> <laughs> it was just great. And that he's allowed that to happen. He really uh, was the leader and the example for the esprit de corps, a common purpose of the story, of the experience. And uh, I mean, we are all under his great shadow and owe him a tremendous debt. How about working with the other four actors? Did you have chemistry straight away? Well, I don't know whether it's chemistry. I think maybe you look back on it and you say, yeah, yeah. this is chemistry. I think that um, certainly I had a blast with Emilio, even though we were adversaries in the film. I had a blast with him. I don't know if I've ever laughed as hard in my life. <laughs> and uh, I really enjoyed working with uh, the late, great Paul Gleason. Yeah. Yeah, you got great scenes um, with you know, him. He was a he was a great actor and a wonderful guy to hate, and a fun <laughs> yeah. guy to piss off. Yeah, and um, I really enjoyed working with him. Uh, also, John Kapalos, who played the janitor. Yeah, I really enjoyed working with everyone there. It was really uh, a wonderful experience. It felt more like going to camp than uh, work. Well, how soon after The Breakfast Club was released did you realize that it struck this chord with the teenage crowd where it really spoke to them? And you know what I mean? Like, how did you, when did you realize that this was more than just a movie? I think it took a while. I think um, it might have taken years until its effect that it had any lasting power because it's not like it was uh, monstrously well reviewed when it first came out. Some people liked it, some people didn't. And it was a pretty big risk. John Hughes said he was inspired by the movie Breaker Morant, mm. an Australian film that yeah. takes place primarily in a courtroom. And so he had the idea of what about if the high school age cast was you know, pretty much in one room for the whole thing. And that was unheard of, well, taking well, that kind of a risk. You know, Judd, Roger Ebert's review at the time, this is, you know, back in 1985, he had this to say about The Breakfast Club. He goes, it's about kids who grow willing to talk to one another, and it has a great ear for the way they speak. Couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> that's great. That's a really wonderful thing that he said that, you know. That's gonna be, and, that's, and that's huge. And if, and if there was a sense that it maybe sounded not realistic, Hughes was enthusiastic in his support of any adjustments. Well, listen, you know, that was just great. 
We are so we are so so grateful, Judd. Thank you so much for calling at the profiles. We are it's so, my pleasure, and I think you. it's wonderful that you're honoring John. Well, yeah. thank you. We think it's great too, and and you're the man. Enjoy uh, enjoy the rest <laughs> of your day, and say say hi to everyone back in Haverford for me. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yes, yes. Right Julie on. Serving. excellent. You got it. Thanks so much, Judd. Have a great Thanks, day. Dad. Thanks for having me. Wow. <laughs> High five again. Shootsy scores. Wow. Okay. Can we figure out some kind of time travel device so I can go back to 14-year-old Leash who watched Ferris Bueller and Breakfast Club on repeat and, and tell her that one day she'll get to talk to Ferris and Bender? But you see, your 14-year-old is coming out right now. <laughs> can you hear it? I can voice? hear it in like your this? voice. Come oh on. God. Give it up. Well, you got to talk to one more guest. Right. As if it wasn't enough that we had <laughs> Ferris and Bender. Embarrassment riches earlier just earlier i spoke with cameron himself alan ruck Let about the making him go uh, about the making of first viewer she is so you're you're in the zone alicia uh, malone sorry i'm a bit flustered let's roll that interview with alan ruck well, ladies and gentlemen of Schmoville, joining us right now on the phone is alan ruck who played cameron fry in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Alan Ruck, thank you so much for joining us here on Profiles today. It's my pleasure. Hey, just a second. My little daughter just, just showed up here. <laughs> Baby, I have to do this. I have to do this interview. I have got to do this interview now, okay? Uh, I'm talking with this gentleman on the phone, and it's going to be on a, a, a show. So I, I, can't, I can't play with you right now, okay? It'll be 10 minutes, to 15 minutes, and then it'll be done, Okay. Okay. Okay, it'll be two minutes, okay? So go see mommy and then I'll be right there, okay? Okay. Sorry. Okay, no problem. Oh, that was so, so sweet. Well, first, Alan, I just want to ask you you know, first, Bjorn's day off is still regarded almost 30 years later as one of the all time comedy classics. Now, why do you think that it still holds up after all this time? Well, I, I actually think that um, in terms of a teen comedy, uh, all the characters, all the all the young people are treated with respect. So that's something that Hughes did was he um, he took teenagers' problems and hopes and dreams very seriously. He honored all that stuff, you know, their hopes and their fears and their ambitions. He honored all that stuff, and he didn't ridicule the kids in his movies. He didn't ridicule uh, the teenage characters in his movies, which is what you find in teen comedies a lot. Like, there's been other movies since then where, you know, and before then, certainly, that, uh, you know, they they ridicule the kids as being, like, sex-crazed and, um, you know, worrying about... Uh, inconsequential things that they'll they'll forget about in a couple of years, but the thing is, when you're when you're fifteen, sixteen, seventeen years old, and you're in love and you get your heart broken, you don't think it's you're going to get any better. <laughs> you know, I mean, you do feel like you're going to die, and um, so I think what Hughes did was he treated his teenage characters like complete human beings whose feelings and hopes and fears, everything, were completely valid. Well, I got to tell you, you know? Alan, I got to uh, tell you, I, I, uh, I was a senior in high school 
just like Cameron and Sloan. Well, Sloan was uh, one year behind, but Ferris, like these guys were, I was a senior just at the same time that they were when this movie came out in 1986. And everything that you just said is exactly what we all loved, not just about Ferris Bueller's Day Off, but also 16 Candles and The Breakfast Club, these seminal movies. But when you first read the screenplay, like, how did you come to be cast as this high school hypochondriac, Cameron Fry? Well, um, I was actually doing uh, a Broadway show with Matthew. Oh. We were in a Neil Simon play called Biloxi Blues. And uh, I had started acting in Chicago, and I did some plays there, and I did a few little parts in movies and TV shows. And then I got this Broadway show. And uh, so I got a better agent. You know, I got a, a big agent, and I got sent out on better auditions. And um, Matthew had been offered the part of Ferris, and uh, my agent called up and uh, tried to get me an audition for Cameron. And... Um, you know, I, I was much older than uh, Cameron. You know, I, I I played that part when I was 29 years old. Wow! <laughs> but I just looked very—I looked very young. Um, and so they tried to get me an audition in the casting. People said, "You know, we know that he's in his 20s, and we just don't think it's going to work." And um, my agent said, "Well, Matthew's 24, and uh, they play next to each other every day on stage, and they." absolutely look like they're the same age. So they agreed to, to read me. So I read for the casting agents. Now, the, the, the fact is that I, I had met John Hughes in Chicago in about 1983, something like that. And he was a, a, a guy who'd worked on movies in L.A., but he really kind of wanted to be a Chicago filmmaker. Sure. And he was going to make The Breakfast Club as an indie in Chicago just to have it be a Chicago movie and then try to find a distributor. And so I met him for that, and I actually read for the Judd Nelson part and did some improvs with him and some other young people. And um, During that process, he met Molly Ringwald. Uh, and the legend has it that he met Molly, and he went home that weekend and wrote 16 Candles for her. And he put um, The Breakfast Club on the back burner, and then, you know, things progressed the way they did. Right, right. So I knew John a little bit, and um, they had they called me back, and uh, I read with Matthew for John. And the thing was, Matthew and I were already friends. We didn't have to create a relationship. We didn't have to, like, make an instant friendship. So often you have to do stuff like that in the movies. You know, you show up. You meet whoever's playing your wife for the first day, you know, and then you have to do some emotional scene that happens all the time. But we didn't have to do that. You know, we uh, we were pals. We were we would spend nine months together uh, doing a play. So we didn't have to sort of make anything up. We just were friends. And, it, you know, it clicked. And it wasn't instant. They didn't offer it to me right away. Um, but it was a, a few weeks later. Maybe about three weeks later, I got offered that part. Well, the chemistry between you and Matthew and Mia, Mia Sarah as well, is is fantastic. And that certainly explains why the chemistry was so great, especially between you and Matthew. And, you know, I sort of have a theory about uh, – another theory about the appeal of Ferris Bueller's Day Off is that if Ferris, if Ferris is the brains of this movie, I feel like Cameron is the heart and soul 
of Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Do you do you agree with that assessment? Well, what is true is that Cameron is the the person in the movie who has the problem. He's the one with the conflict. Um, Ferris doesn't really have any problems, <laughs> yeah. other than that I'm other than that Cameron's his best friend, and you know, and he's got some concerns about what happens after we graduate. What happens between him and Sloan? You know, he he sort of. Um, mulls over those questions during the course of the movie. But in terms of like having a problem, having a life problem, he doesn't really have life problems. He's he's doing great. Yeah. Um, and he makes it his business to help me. So in that sense, I think that that's true. But of course, for someone to care that much about their friend, I, I think that... Uh, I think... Ferris is part of the heart of the movie too. Certainly. Because it's because of him, it's because of him that Cameron has his catharsis, you know. Definitely. Definitely. Well, in terms of yeah. working with John Hughes, you know, you're you said you met him back in 1983. You know, tell us tell us a little about his style, his process, your 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 relationship with him. What sort of made him different from other directors that you worked with before and definitely since? Well, um, John was very confident, uh, about his writing, you know, he, um, and I, I think, you know, as time went on about his directing too, but he was very confident about his writing. So what was really great was that we do a scene as written and then, uh, do maybe do that a couple of times. And then he'd say, do this one, just make, make it up. Oh, there was make a lot up. of improv. Interesting. You know, yeah. Do, do do what do do what you think you would do. Do what you think you would do in the situation, you know. And so that was fun. It was a fun challenge. And um, so there's different things in the movie that we got to uh, that we just you know improvised and they they stayed in. Um, so that was fun. That was really refreshing because a lot of writers and you know understandably so are very protective of their words. And um, the good thing was that this writer also happened to be the director. Yeah, right. <laughs> so uh, lot, lots of times, you know, a writer basically gives their baby up for adoption when the movie's made, and then you know, directors and, and producers change stuff all over the place, and they're just out in the cold. They don't have anything to say about it. But um, uh, so it, that was really a lot of fun. Uh, Channel was really good that way. Do you have a favorite memory of making the film, like maybe a, a certain moment with John where, where that you cherish from the making of this film and a certain scene that you that was your favorite to film? The, the, probably the, the thing that was most fun to film was um, at the ballpark. I mean, there's other things in the film that were satisfying. I mean, it was, it was satisfying to accomplish the big scene, you know, where I, I kick the car and it goes through the window and that big emotional scene, it, that was that was really satisfying to do that and accomplish it and, and have it work. Right. You know, but in terms of what was actually fun, when we were at Wrigley Field, that was fun, <laughs> you know, because that was, that was one of the situations where John said, make something up, make something up, you know. So we started riffing, we started doing stuff, and um, all that stuff stayed in the movie. You know, oh, that's and, uh, so that was a lot of fun. Um, 
there was kind of a mystical, uh, a magical moment that happened that had, didn't have anything to do with the movie except where we were located on Lakeshore Drive. We were pulled over the side of the road with uh, the insert truck, you know, the, the tow vehicle. Sure. Uh, pulling the Ferrari over at the side of the road. And uh, they were fixing lights, or they were doing whatever they were doing. And um, there's an inlet. There's a canal. that It's an inlet from Lake Michigan that goes right through Lincoln Park right there. And um, while we were uh, standing around waiting for the, the camera guys and the, the uh, 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 gaffers and stuff to be finished, some kid was fishing down in that canal, and he caught a 10-pound salmon, and it was like jumping out of the water, you know, wow. like and it, he was a little boy. He was probably about 10 years old. And there was this fish that was damn near as big as he was. And it was like jumping out of the water, trying to break that line. And it would go back down. It would come out again and jump, you know, and the whole film crew ran down to the water to watch this kid land the fish. Oh, wow. You know, that was, that was fun. That was really something. Well, how, how, what was it like for you and for, for Matthew and especially for John, when Ferris Bueller's Day Off came out in 1986, and it was just this huge hit. Well, you know, it's interesting how that happened because it was a successful movie, mostly because they. I don't think it cost. I think it cost about six million dollars. Uh, principal photography, and I don't know what they spent on advertising, but say they tripled that. So say it cost about twenty million dollars, all in. Sure. Right. Yep all the advertising, all the post-production, everything, it made almost $80 million. So um, it was financially, it was a huge success for Paramount Pictures. So that was really cool. And um, it only, it made like $77 million, something like that. We were number 10 for the year, right? Because Top Gun came out, other things were bigger movies. Now today we wouldn't even, we wouldn't even, that might not even be the top 20, you know, of course, that was nineteen eighty-six dollars. Yeah. Um, so it would, you know, it would be adjusted, obviously, for inflation. But um, so everybody was very pleased with the way it performed, and then, and then it was like, okay, what's the next thing? You know, what's my next job? What am I going to do next? <laughs> and um, the cult thing, the sort of the revisiting of the movie, and the rediscovery of the movie didn't happen for a couple of years, you know? And then uh, it was, you know, when people started to watch it on cable and on uh, home video again, a couple, I'd say, like maybe two years after the movie came out, then it started to pick up this momentum that it still has. Maybe not as much as it once had, but it it's still chugging along. It's still chugging um, along. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, so... Uh, Everybody was obviously very pleased with uh, how the movie turned out and how well it did financially. But uh, the sort of cult thing, that that, uh, that little mystique didn't come along until a few years later. Well, speaking of what's next, you know, you're talking about, okay, what's next? How come at some point there should have been a sequel to Ferris Bueller's Day Off, but it never happened? And, like, how close did you guys get? And is it still... Maybe is it still a possibility that we may one day see a sequel to Ferris Bueller's Day Off? Well, I, I, I'm guessing not, just because John has passed, and it would have to be 
someone very close to John, like one of his sons, uh, something like that, um, someone who was very close to John would have to write that picture, you know? Sure. So I'm thinking not. And what, what happened at the time was um, John talked to Matthew about a sequel. I don't know that I was going to be involved in it. I think it was going to be Ferris Goes to College, <laughs> you know? Um, and so I think John was in talks with Matthew about that. But I think at that point in his life, Matthew wanted to stop playing kids. Sure. And um, it wasn't long after that that he did um, Glory, you know. And so I think he wanted to try to do, at least at that time, I think he wanted to try and do more dramatic films, more, you know, different kinds of films. Certainly. So um, that's as far as that ever went. And uh, I always thought that they should wait until Matthew and I uh, were in our 70s and that... Uh, Cameron is in a, a nursing home, and um, you know he's just kind of rotting away in a nursing home. And <laughs> Ferris comes and basically springs him, <laughs> you know, just like helps him escape from the nursing home, and then takes him on another day where they just do up the town. And then at the end of the movie, Cameron dies, oh. but he's happy. <laughs> <laughs> well, before before I let you go, for the record, who did you base your imitation of Mister Peterson on? And can you still do his impression? Well, I don't know if I can still do it, but that that was something I did to um, to crack up Broderick because um, John just said, "You come up with a voice, come up with a voice for you know Sloan's father." So we had been doing this play, Biloxi Blues, in New York for nine months, and the director was this guy named Gene Sachs, who's still alive. I think he's. Uh, he's like maybe 93 years old now. Um, and he's a great guy. He was a great guy. But we used to just drive him crazy, and he used to get so mad at us because <laughs> we'd be screwing around all the time. you know. And uh, he would just lose his temper, and uh, we were afraid. He was like 65 at the time. We were afraid we were going to give him a stroke you know, because <laughs> um, he'd get so mad, and he'd get red in the face, and he'd start screaming at us, I don't believe your soldiers. You know, and uh, uh, so I didn't tell Matthew what I was going to do. Uh, and I just waited until, you know, we started rolling. And actually what I was doing was an imitation of Matthew doing an imitation of Gene Sachs. <laughs> Hilarious. And I did it just, you know, pretty much to crack up Broderick, but then, it, you know, it worked. It worked its way into the movie. Well, listen, Alan Ruck, thank you so much. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk about the legendary John Hughes. You know, he's, his movies just have had such an impact, not just on my generation, but also every generation that's followed, which is why we are honoring him on Profiles this week. Thank you again, and just have a great day. Thanks. Have a good day. So long. Bye. Rooney. Rooney. Oh, this is Mr. Peterson. <laughs> Mr. Peterson. Oh, well, I can't listen. do it. Okay. That was a great interview. Great well interview. Done. Great show. Great show. I feel great like this show. was a really fun celebration of the brilliance of John Hughes. Such amazing guests. Well, let's uh, count down, recap our Fast Five coming in at number five. She's, She's having, having a baby. baby. Number four, planes, planes trains, trains, and, and automobiles. automobiles. Number three, 16, 16 candles. candles. Number two, the Ferris first Bueller's Day, Day off. Oh. And number one, The, the Breakfast, Breakfast Club. Club. Ha <laughs> ha!
do that. <laughs> well, listen, make sure one last time, make sure you go to iTunes, subscribe, rate and review us. Really, 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 really important. And share our, our show. Go to our Facebook page. Yes, we're so uh, proud of it. We just want to get it out there. And we end for next week. For next week. Who, who do, do we, we have? have? I'm going to make him an offer again with you. Oh, Francis Ford Coppola. This one is going to be fun. Oh, We've so just good. had the best time doing Profiles, so make sure you come back next week and just tell everyone about Profilers. Yes. We love our Profilers. That's watching. you. Thanks for watching, and we will see you next time. Bye. From producers Christian Harloff, Mark Ellis, and the entire Schmoes No Network crew, we would like to thank you for listening to Profiles with Alicia Malone and Scott Mads. Special thanks to Kevin Undergaro and Maria Madunos, the author of Every Girl's Guide to Diet and Fitness, in stores now. Be sure to subscribe to Profiles on iTunes and rate and review the show. To get other Schmoes No Network episodes, movie news, and join the conversation, be sure to visit SchmoesNo.com. I'm the Pit Boss, and this has been a presentation of the Schmoes No Network. So anyway, I was talking to the... What? Wait. What? You're still here? What are you guys doing here? It. It's over. Show's over. Go home. Go home. Get out of here. Leave. <laughs> <laughs> Bonus for you guys. <laughs>